This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. So where should I begin? Is this just sort of personal history? Yeah, you know, hearing a little bit about you and how you came to be an instructor and a professor and research and teaching. And yeah, and I'm super interested just because of your discipline in the power of story. I was doing a professional development workshop with faculty. I do this every fall. And we talk about using story and narrative in designing lectures. Oh, cool, that's great. That's cool, awesome. okay, because I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you about that. <laughs> Who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> from the University of Texas at Austin, this is The Other Side of Campus. Hello, my name is Jen Moon. I'm an Associate Professor of Instruction in the College of Natural Sciences. I'm Stephanie seidel Holmston, Assistant Professor of Instruction in the College of Liberal Arts. My dad has a saying that's been a become a bit of a mantra for our family after adventuresome work, traveling, sailing, trying something new. We often say, we'll never do that again. <laughs> In today's episode, we'll explore the process of how we adapt to new opportunities and how we learn through failure. For many of us, this happened in the spring, moving classes online, trying new techniques in real time, adjusting when they failed. In this episode, we're going to focus on not so much the final product of what we did, but the process of how we got there and how we learned to do something new. So true, because certainly often as instructors, we kind of stand in some level of confidence. Maybe it's our expertise or our research, our experience in the classroom. And then in the spring, we moved online and we had to adapt in front of our students trying new things in real time. Um, some of those ideas sounded really good in my mind, but then I put them to work in the classroom and many things fell apart. What I'm curious in this conversation is to think about whether in those moments, we might actually be teaching one of the most important things to teach. How do we learn through failure? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, this is in fact the heart of learning, trial and error, testing out hypotheses, building new knowledge. It requires failure. And yet oftentimes we do everything we can to avoid failing ourselves. Yeah, so true. Today, we're talking with Dr. Rachel Gonzalez-Martin. Thanks, Rachel, for joining us today with the other side of campus. Dr. Gonzalez-Martin holds a PhD in folklore and ethnomusicology from Indiana University. Her research focuses on the verbal and material traditions of communities coming of age in the American Latino diaspora. Her work looks at personal experience narratives and has a particular focus on gender, sexual identities, race and socioeconomic status. Rachel, welcome. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate the invitation to share some of my experiences. So thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. 
We're so excited to have you. We, um, Stephanie and I met you during the online teaching days and we observed your class called Latinx Legend Tripping. Could you tell us a little bit about that course? What brought you to develop that course and what were your goals for the students? Sure, absolutely. So I'm starting my seventh year at UT and I've never been able to teach a class, and this might sound silly, about the supernatural. Ghosts and witches and superstitions are really what brought me to my field. It's the stuff I love, but it's also things that I grew up with. I grew up Mexican-American in California. And so I grew up hearing different kinds of stories of the supernatural, often to control my behavior or potentially control my behavior. So the idea that those things are always near and near to my heart. And although I've, I've, I have a degree in folklore and I've been teaching at UT and, and teaching before it for some time, I was never confident to teach a paranormal class because I was afraid it wasn't going to be taken seriously. The Women and Gender Studies at UT reached out to me as I'm part of their core faculty um, if I wanted to teach a summer class. And it could be about anything I wanted. And I said, oh, okay. I would like to teach a class. I just off the bat, I'd like to teach a class about haunted women. And they're like, yes, teach it. I was like, okay. What is that about? <laughs> Could I talk about spooky legend from Latino cultural context and teach about the interpretation of those stories, not as true or false, but as allegories for ideal feminine behavior? And they were like, sure. And I said, okay. And so, the, I mean, it was very kind of last minute at a time when, you know, everything wanted to go digital. And to be perfectly honest, I was teaching, you know, through spring like everyone else and struggling with how the spring semester was going. So I didn't really have time before the spring semester ended to really think about this class. But luckily, because I spend a lot of my free time thinking about these kinds of stories, watching documentaries, watching interview programs about the paranormal, that all of this stuff was, was already sort of on my mind. It was things I already knew and love. So to me, the class has been so fun. <laughs> I've never had so much fun teaching and it's the first summer class that I've taught. So there's this, this interesting connection between the topic, honestly, this idea of working from home with Zoom that made it really appealing. And so really my class is about how we tell stories about ourselves, how do we internalize those stories and what does it mean for us to understand that we can change those stories. So my students are, we're drawing on narratives that are very familiar from their childhood or their, you know, their young adult life. You know, we're spending some time thinking about, okay, what is this about? Who is this about? And then talk about what could it, what, what could we be talking about? What are, what are sort of the hidden narratives here? And do we question these stories? And why wouldn't we question these stories? And they require a lot of personal input, right? Knowing, telling, you know, trying to tell students about the ways in which stories there is no sense of fact or truth that is universal. These stories were created for a purpose and they circulate for another purpose. <laughs> and we kind of have a choice whether we would like to internalize them or question them. And so we spend a lot of time sort of digging at what, what's familiar to us and what is the strange. This week we're discussing how are, are women made into monsters? And then realizing what as educated, literate people, particularly women in higher ed, why don't we just retell the stories? And so the story we passed down to our nieces and our children and our students are different. And some of them, it almost looked like their heads exploding. Like, you can do that? It's like, you can do that. So that was, I mean, so that's my class for, for the last five weeks. And it's been really wonderful. And I'm really hoping UT will let me teach it <laughs> next time in a, in a regular semester. Mm -hmm. 
I'd certainly say from what I observed, and I bet Jen would agree, the level of conversation was so engaging. It was authentic. It was real. There was space for things that I don't always see space for in a classroom with a exploratory attitude. One of the things that really struck me in your class was your own use of personal stories. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how you weave your stories into your teaching. Absolutely. That's kind of a larger, complicated conversation, but it definitely kind of ties in. I definitely made notes for our conversation to to give me my points. I've always wanted to teach, but it wasn't until I was in an undergrad that I thought I wouldn't teach elementary school. I had intended in my life to be a fourth grade teacher. That was this social transition moment that I thought was so critical. Personal, I changed schools in a very critical moment in my fourth grade year. And so to me, that was a, a time that I wanted to impact children's lives. So this idea of the difference between understanding what it is to be a teacher and the public narrative, what it is to be a professor, have always sort of plagued me. And so my positionality as a professor, recently tenured professor here at the University of Texas, I've always felt as though I had to assert a certain kind of authority and a certain kind of embodiment of rigor because I'm a woman of color. I'm a a young-ish looking woman of color. And I like to talk about ghosts and monsters and frilly dresses and ritual. And so I'm not a professor of math or physics, right? People don't respect my topic of study as knowledge, as research. I have to sort of justify it. And so in many ways, I'm always sort of trying to remind people of my connection to my work. And so one of the key themes that I've dealt with since I started teaching at the college level, and I started teaching, you know, as an advanced undergraduate working with professors, but really as an independent instructor in 2006 when I was a graduate student at Indiana. And that's a very particular social position to be a woman of color, graduate student among predominantly white student body who see me as a student, who I wasn't from the Midwest, right? There was all sorts of foreign exoticizing elements. And for most of my students, I was very possibly the only Latina they had ever met because we had a large population coming from rural Indiana around. And there's heavy segregation between, let's say, the rural Mexican labor population, the urban populations from Indianapolis, and clearly this Californian, right, in Bloomington, Indiana, in Southern Indiana. And so it it was very early in my career that I felt that I had to assert myself in a very particular kind of way. And in, in many ways, that was about other people's words. That meant heavy reading loads for all my classes, very much focused on theory and criticism and being very clear that this is a hard class. This is a rigorous class. You're going to work. This is going to be difficult and I'm going to be hard on you. And I was very, very eager, even more than their learning of those early years to assert my authority. Yes, I was hired. Yes, you let me in. But I know that some of you don't necessarily take me seriously. And I know for some of you, I look a little too familiar. I'm like your cousin or your aunt, in some cases now, um, your mother. And so in some of these ways, I was fearful of that connection. And so I was quite reserved. And I, I would let my, my, the politics of my citations and the politics of my syllabus be the, the narrative that students have of me. 
And that worked for you know a long time and it, it, it worked in some way, but it also made my teaching very tense. And it's not that I wasn't a good teacher. I've always been, been hi- highly rated as a teacher, but people were kind of scared of me. And I had a student tell me this once and I kind of thought it was hilarious. I'm like, why are you scared of me? But I think part of it was this act of creation of distance that you do not personalize. You are professional. You are rigorous. They can't hold anything against you. They won't question you because that's always the fear as you're, you're standing in front of this group of students claiming to be an expert and their idea of, well, why should I believe you? You don't look like someone that I should listen to. And so that wears on your soul a little bit. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I wonder if you chafed under that kind of having to wear that mantle and that costume every day. Absolutely. So I grew up in a place that was rough and my parents were very, very self-conscious about how we presented ourselves publicly, how we would succeed through education, how we would, would get somewhere else. It's very seriousness that I brought to my teaching. And that seriousness to me was coded in something like the crazy syllabus, right? The syllabus that was, here's all the reading that you need to do. Here's your required reading. Here's suggested reading. Here's all the ways in which, you know, you can't turn things in late. There was a lot of structure and there was a lot of control. I wanted to maintain control of the classroom. I was scared of of letting students kind of wander with their ideas because no, you're going to be reading, did you read for class? Because if you didn't read for class, then I don't know why we have to do this at all, right? This idea of always trying to enforce something. And so that that gets tiring. And it also made me always question of whether I did it right. Each time, was, did they actually talk about the reading? I couldn't tell that they read. Should I give them a quiz? Like, I need to show them that I mean business. And so that's, that's sort of when I think about success and failures in terms of teaching, I always kind of come back to sort of this larger vision of how I see myself in relation to my students. And because I, I was trained in a department of a field that was not race and class aware, they weren't necessarily thinking of those critical discourses. There wasn't a lot of open discussion with mentors about being a good teacher or even thinking about the difficulties of being a woman of color in front of a white classroom. So that meant that there was, it was all left to my head. So talking about, you know, thinking about Brene Brown, the stories we tell ourselves in our heads about what's going on, what is possible and what is acceptable. For years, that meant that the preparation for my courses was rigorous and extensive. It had to justify why I was led into my grad program in the first place. It had to be somehow interesting, but it also to show them that I mean business, right? You need to take me seriously. And that's very much indicative, again, of my narrative of discomfort. My narrative of this being a first-generation experience for me of not wanting to seem underprepared, right? And not wanting to seem vulnerable to their criticism. And so you get a little bit of this self-fulfilling prophecy machine that says, if you don't make it to the end of that list that you established for yourself, you didn't do a good job today. How much of that narrative were you aware of? I mean, it's so interesting that the work you do is all about storytelling and what you decide to internalize and what you think is crazy. And and you're and of course, all of our experiences are kind of telling us our narrative about ourselves and either reinforcing it or challenging it. How aware were you of this narrative that you were setting up for yourself while, you, while it was- Again, thinking about development. Now, just, just to narrate my background, I've gone to school and been on the school cycle since I was five years old. So I've gone back to back from undergraduate to my grad programs and then to tenure track job. So this has always been my world for the most part. And so understanding that I never really fully trusted myself to know what I was getting into. Um, So part of this is my relationship to the university setting itself. 
I know I like to teach, but I understood the idea of teaching as my thought with kids, right? With children, thinking about that. I hadn't imagined myself entering a university classroom. And part of my mind was like, I don't think anyone's going to let me teach at the university level. Like, why would they? And then as I, you know, move forward in my programs and develop further, um, it, it was something I like to do more and more, but it, it was always sort of a gatekeeping process, right? At any point, you can be rated out of use, right? If students don't like you, if students give you poor numbers. So that was always the fear, the idea of being destroyed by someone else's story of what I was doing. So all of those elements meant that everything that I was going through was new to me. There's no one in my family that has this experience previously. I had no story about what was going to happen or what could happen. I only had what I was sort of living day to day. So it meant there was a lot of ambivalence and a lot of uncertainty. And that, you know, as a graduate student, not great. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't make pretty bad. <laughs> right. And you add another level of like, well, I was always concerned. And so I was very, I, I sort of gripping my fist, right? Very, trying to be very pulled together, very, very closed. Look at the burden that your syllabus carries, right? I love that idea that you mentioned yeah. The syllabus showed you the politics of my citations. I'm going to rely on being so organized, so pulled together, so professional, because we've got these narratives swimming through our heads about who ought to be here, who should be in this place, what does a professor look like and speak like, and if I think about this when I study the election of women and ethnic minorities and minority women around the world, we hear women talk about this in terms of political leadership as well. How do I demonstrate leadership characteristics and that burden of who carries those abilities and who doesn't? Absolutely. And it, it's funny because when we think about teaching and we often are thinking about assignments or rapport in class, but again, adding that layer of a woman of color meant that I was also adding a visual politic to that, which meant that at those same years of sort of turmoil of do I belong here was literally also defying my own sense of what I liked or disliked about professional dress, trying to like squeeze into the polyester gray suit skirt and a button up white, you know, Oxford shirt and a very particular aesthetic that said I was smart, that I was cosmopolitan, no bright colors, right? This, this sort of racialization of style, which is something I study now, but at the time was very personal and very much like, no, no, you're not going to read me as, as someone who doesn't belong here. But it also meant I wasn't being myself. I was suppressing. And, and so that meant that the way that I, the way that I sort of got out of thinking of my syllabus and the rigidity of that was, was the opening up of other things. Well, that's sort of that narrative as well. Learning to, to think that it was okay to be conspicuous or conspicuously myself, which more and more at the university, the more Zoom meetings I'm in, the more hoop earrings and weird glasses I see. But you realize like on campus too, there's a different sort of, for different people, there's a different sort of style aesthetic, right? And I think of this as taking up a little bit of space. Absolutely. I'm going to take up a space with my presence. And certainly the choices we make about dress and color speak yeah. to, I'm going to take up some space here. In particularly, again, racialized women of color, Black women, Latina women. And I got this at the very beginning of my graduate career, where I had a minority professor who was, you, you, she was telling us a story of her first semester at the university, Indiana University. She's a, a tall woman. She was a mariachi. She was a musician. And so she was teaching an ethnomusicology course and she was wearing a fuchsia suit, 
like a kind of a, a, um, a button up coat and a, a long skirt, but it was all one color. And she said, people, it was, it was as though they were so surprised but they they fawned over it, but in a weird way where it's like, oh, of course, you're a Latina. That she said she hated it. And I was the only Latina in that class. So I was sitting in this classroom where the professor was being made to feel objectified. And so that's sort of you think about being primed, right? Being primed to, to be cautious, right? Or being primed to be ready to be put on the spot. And so you don't want to draw attention to yourself and keep yourself from being put on the spot. And in teaching, right? you're automatically on the spot. You are the front of the classroom. And so the idea of wanting to be neat and wanting to look a certain way or specifically not look a certain way, not to be noticeable, to blend in and look like you belong, like you don't have any doubts about belonging was really important to me. Like it was really, really important to me because I had all my eggs in my university basket, right? I wasn't going to drop out. I had student loans. I was on my own, right? Other people could leave the university and find another gig. And I was like, this is what I'm doing. This is where my investment is. I don't have a family home to go back. I don't have these other things. So again, there was a lot of stakes at play. One of the things I'm kind of interested in here is thinking about failure and what you just brought up here and connecting that is being prepared to fail is also being okay with being vulnerable. Yes. And and so I'm so curious about, you know, you've, you've set the story up beautifully how these are all the external forces that were kind of mitigating how you interacted with your environment. Your class that we observed, no sign of that. <laughs> so I'm so curious, was there a catalyst or what is it that allowed you kind of to release this mantle and to be comfortable and, and, and to accept vulnerability? Because you, I'm sure at the beginning, were anticipating there'd be some clapback to opening yourself up to your true self with your student. Absolutely. And that's interesting because I think that there is no moment, but there's definitely been a process that I can see from the vantage point where I'm at now, which is I'm officially tenured. It's been a a really uh, crazy year emotionally. I could conceivably give someone my opinion and, and know that it's been externally validated by the university. So I've taught all my classes have at least two flags, cultural diversity in the Americas flag, and all my classes have writing flags. And part of that is one, rigor, right? But it's also this sense of, even if you don't like the topics that I like, you need this class. You know, what? how does that reflect back on me as a teacher or as a professor or as a researcher, right? To not be doing something that has relevance, regardless of whether you get hired to do it or not. And so part of the way that this came through, thinking of that, that rigor meant that students were consistently writing a lot and they were always expected to produce uh, you know, a 10 page research paper, like in this, and then discussing the politics of research and writing. Um, and the more that I, and so almost all my class had these, these similar flags. So I was always kind of revisiting this idea of writing, um, as I was, I was developing my classes year after year. And there was one, it was maybe the third time I taught an undergraduate theory course. It was an division theory course that was writing flag. And I had a student say, do I have to write a paper? And of course, the first thing I wanted to say was, of course, you have to write a paper. Welcome <laughs> to the universe. This is, what- this is academics. Yeah, this is academic writing. And she's like, well, because I'm a poet and I have these chapbooks that I make. And could I cite, could I, could I use the course material to put together a poetry chapbook that was discussing the same issues, that was citing sources, but was not in research writing form? And I said, yeah, 
you could do that. That sounds amazing. Wow. And so having given her permission to do that once, I essentially kind of the next week said, well, I can't just, it's not fair to just say like she can do that. So I, I told him, I said, well, you know, this, this opportunity has come up to be a little more creative with the assignment. So I'm going to open that up to everyone. So part of undoing some of my thinking was remembering that I wasn't training a bunch of people to become professors, right? The idea of where my students were going to go was hugely varied, right? And so to say that there's some kind of peak educational experience that would fit everyone is kind of, I started to think kind of ridiculous. So, but what I started thinking about is how I integrate this change in class so it's purposeful. So again, still thinking a little bit about, I can't just change the assignment. I look, I look like I don't know what I'm doing. They're just gonna be like, oh, we can just ask her to do something and she'll change it. And it's like, no, no. <laughs> it has to be formal writing of a kind where it's thoughtful and critical, but it doesn't need to really be a 10 page paper. And so part of what I started incorporating into my writing assignments in my classes with writing flags was the notion of audience. And because I teach undergraduates who are predominantly minority students, that I said, well, who do you want to have a conversation with? Because the whole point of research, right, is to do work that you can then share with other people. I love what you're talking about here, Rachel, this idea of what you have described to us as a process in which you ask some questions that maybe I've lost the habit of asking or should continue to embrace and remember that this is what I ask. Why is this important? Why do I ask for the 10-page paper with the 11th page that's a bibliography? And boy, do I have descriptions of how to write that paper. And then you ask the second question, what are we preparing students for? And to illuminate the sense of if graduate school might be something that you've considered, play around with a 10-page paper and see what that feels like. And if it lights you up, then you've learned something about yourself. If you see some other endeavors in your future that are not graduate school, yes, it's very, very possible to make an amazing impact on the world outside of graduate school. Maybe you want to interview somebody or maybe you want to, what are some other skills that might be important for preparing students? And what you did in that process then is illuminated the purpose of what we're doing in the classroom. And I wonder sometimes if it's easy to imagine our purpose is to do what people have always done in the past. And we forget to ask, what are we doing in this moment with this group of people in this room or virtual space? Absolutely. It depends a lot on the teacher's role in the classroom, the kind of um, department you're in, the kind of department culture, and definitely Latino studies as an ethnic studies department is always wanting to consider our students' experiences, right? There's something about understanding whether it's the idea of being first-generation college students, whether it's maybe being precarious um, financially outside of the university context, whether it's bilingualism at home, whatever, or even just the idea of people that aren't necessarily from Austin. I would start telling students, I, I gave them sort of a list of Here's, here are ideas that you could do. You don't have to do them. You could do something else. And then everybody who's doing a creative piece then writes essentially what I call an artist statement. And your artist statement says, okay, it draws attention to the fact that all of this academic creation is art in some way. I tell my students, read every paper. It's someone's creation to cite in a certain way, to pick a certain venue to put their work. 
all of those are subjective choices. So we kind of come back to this idea that all of those are subjective choices based on a particular audience and a particular goal. So you should also decide who is, who is your goal audience and then tailor how you present your information to them. But the way that I made sure they understood that writing was a product of research, everybody in the class, regardless of what you were producing, goes through the same research process. First time I did it though, because it was like, kind of like letting go of your child's hand, like to go to school, like, like, and because I had never done it before, you get a huge range of what's possible and what, how much guidance students do need or don't need. But it changed the kind of the rules and saying, you know, how we think about writing as a product of a subjective product, right? And again, not always as useful to everyone as it might be to their professors. So I kind of laugh. I'm like, if you only want me as your audience, totally fine. Write to me as a professor who's going to be looking at this for style and for rigor in a particular way for citation or show me that you have those skills anyway in your one to two page artist statement and then show me you know, how you would communicate this information in other ways. And so that was sort of my, I'd like to say my gateway to saying, well, maybe I could let go of some of the old rules a little bit. It put a lot more on them to sort of independently come to me. And it meant that I had to practice. And I'm still getting used to it this this year because of the COVID switches to online space and thinking about my own online class in the summer has been easier to let go and let discussions occur naturally and let students speak back and forth to one another. But that was sort of the first thing saying, well, what if I pose a question rather than giving them the laundry list of this is what you needed to get? You know, what's important about understanding authorship or what's important about understanding authority in, in writing stories? And over, over switching to sort of the assignments and hearing students talk about what they're doing and how they're doing it, it hit me that from hearing them talk about their responses to the kinds of work they were gonna be doing for our class that were more creative, it really became important for me to tell them that, do you understand the power of academic narratives? Academic narratives, particularly in my field, folklore, anthropology, they create people, they create communities. If the anthropologist writes it in an ethnography, then it's real. And that's actually how I even got to my field. I was reading, you know, sociological work about Mexican-American women that used the phrase, you know, Mexican-American women do. And I was like, I don't do that. Am I not a Mexican-American woman? And it wasn't, again, you know, this is part of, you know, these are different ways of engaging with um, demographics and things. But I thought, what would it mean to feel included in the story that's being told supposedly about me? And so telling them, like, we really need to question how we share information and who's allowed to share information. And so part of that got folded in with the idea of saying, this is why we understand that there's a research process, right, an academic process, but then there's a way of sharing that knowledge that can prioritize different people, right? They can prioritize academics, but they can prioritize your nieces and nephews, right? They can prioritize these other audiences. And how can I tell my students that I care where you come from and I don't think you come to the university with a cultural deficit if I tell them then that the conversations that they're allowed to have are only with um, people that they could never that they would never call their family. And it seems like you're doing that a little bit also when you describe academic work as creative work like in a gallery display where you make choices about what goes where you're sort of creating 
a sense in the minds of the students that these tasks maybe are similar in ways that we haven't thought about. You're making me think about an uh, article from decades ago by Cynthia Inlow called The Mundane Matters, part of the feminist tradition to talk about what is taken seriously, where is data, where do we observe international relations. Maybe we observe international relations in the bodies of women that live on the borders outside of military bases, security, and what that means. And this process of letting go of the old rules to engage in a creative endeavor brings and invites students much more into the conversation, I think. Absolutely. Again, thinking about students with different levels of comfort or experience with canonical texts, right? Even if they're canonical texts in ethnic studies, right? The idea that it's still not necessarily speaking to them. So for me, the idea of of letting go, letting them have more authority, letting people, you know, saying, what do you guys think? Here's a question. But also in the terms of the project, what you get is this idea of an emergent discourse, right? Things that aren't written in stone, that aren't regurgitated, but are encouraged to say like, well, what do you get? What are you adding based on what you've done and the conversation you're having right now with your peers? And it's like, oh, like, I'm like, this matters. This is a space of power. Welcome to the university. <laughs> this is how the ideas come and form. And so you're creating right now and you can put that into your work. And they're like, Oh, I was like, yeah. So I think part of it was having to get really comfortable with the idea of saying, it wasn't my responsibility to spoon feed, like, here are the good ideas. Think about them and, and then write about them and be nervous about remembering them. It was sort of saying, yeah, there's all these great ideas and there's certain ways in which you'll need to call on them. I said, but I was kind of laughing, like, but you never have to memorize them. <laughs> Even if you get a PhD, for the most part, you're sitting with a pile of books, right? And time to write. I was like, this is, and I remind like, this isn't life or death. And so when you talk about adding narratives and it, I forget this sometimes, but whatever I'm teaching, right. All of this is all very personal to me because I teach about everyday artistry. I, I teach about the, the personal is political. I teach about the female body. So there's nothing that I can, <laughs> nothing about what I'm working on that doesn't have some, uh, some way to fold back into my life. So I start more personally than I ever used to as well. So when I start my classes, it's like, this is who I am. This is where I come from. Um, my, these are who my parents are. They're not people like, this is not where I thought I would land. I, every time I graduated with something, I was like, okay, you made it another step. Don't mess up. <laughs> and so there was always a little bit of like the looming pressure and I kind of laughed. And so even being able to have some of these conversations with them and say, you know, this is, this is who I am. It's different from who you are, but we're going to do this together. And that also eventually led up, probably starting maybe this year, being a lot like, you know, looking at my syllabus and saying, why do I have all this, all the ways in which you might be able to make up a missed assignment? And then <laughs> you miss something, have a chat with me and we'll figure it out. Like literally, but if you never contact me, then, then you can't make it up. And the idea of putting that kind of loosey-goosey on the syllabus was a, a big step in saying, it's okay if there's a little bit of ambivalence, because that means they have to come talk to me. And they, and there's, you know, and there's no, and I tell them, there's no reason for me not to be generous with you. I'm not here, you know, this isn't about, this because I'm lucky, this isn't the kind of work that I do, this isn't the kind of work that I teach, right? I'm not, this isn't a, uh, you know, you're not learning equations, and, and you're, le you're learning about the ways ideas are formed and how we interpret life.
So the idea that I have no reason to not let you make up work if something happens, you know, that I have. And so I talk about mutual respect. I talk about allowing each other to speak. I talk about being compassionate to each other at the very beginning of class, mostly too, because I said, you know, because I need it too. So I'm divorced and I have a little boy. And so it was last fall, like, and this was, this was a really big kind of turning point was last, um, because of my divorce and because of custody, I had days where I had my son and I had to teach. And I was like, I have no family here. And you know, it was fine, but it was like, I guess I'll just have to take him to class with me. And so he would come to class with me, animal crackers and iPad and hide under a, a desk. And I thought, oh, for sure, forget it. Like, what are they gonna, what are they gonna think of this woman who has to babysit her, you know, who has to bring her kid to class? Like thinking about being seen as unprofessional. And I got so much emotional response, like at the end of the semester to a young woman who said, I had no idea you could be a professor and have your child, like, and to have a family. And so they're like, I want to be a professor, but I always wanted to have a kid, you know? And I was like, well, this isn't the norm, but thank you. You know, the idea that they were, they were so generous with what they saw and what stories they had told themselves about me, but how open they were to a version of myself that wasn't what I assumed they needed from me or that the only way they would take me serious. It's astounding how if you can show a little faith by making yourself vulnerable to your students, that they will by and large exert that same courtesy to you. You know what I'm saying? Like there's that you go into a situation where you might feel like you're taking a huge risk and to find out that students aren't like an alien species. They are people right? <laughs> that have, we are people. And have <laughs> stuff happen to them. And it's sometimes very interesting to me when you, and you spoke a little bit this earlier, like this preconceived notion we have of what an instructor or a professor should be. And I make yeah. my voice sound like that because it always sounds very yeah. like robotic almost. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then the students, you know, how they should be. And sometimes we tell ourselves the, as, as professors and stuff that, oh, the students, you know, you hear people in the hallway, oh, the students are out to get you. You have to be ironclad with, as you say, yeah. your attendance policy and your assignment yeah. policy, or they're going to take advantage. And, and to then kind of overcome that and say, you know what, this is just reality right now. And I know that you all have experiences like this too, and let's just name it and be comfortable. Yeah. And I think especially now, especially now, especially now, I think that's actually where everyone's at home. Absolutely. And it seems like then we become invited into telling a different story. Yeah. Like you said, Rachel, I have that feeling of needing to be very organized to resist what I perceive as the temptation for students to evaluate me as disorganized, therefore not quite on par to be in this position, but I live into that story by responding by being very organized. Sure. And what I hear in your story is a chance to actually retell that relationship and to be redefining of the role of a faculty member. Absolutely. And for me, that's that's really so important because I, I start to get very honest with my students, particularly as I had sort of a good, third, really good third year review. As I sort of felt more confident that I was going to stick around, I felt more um, emboldened to just be honest and be myself with them. And in all my syllabi from then on, I said, if you have children and you need them to come to class, bring them to class. So last fall, last spring, um, I had a student who 
had a little, you know, a little small child who was like, I watch her. He's like, you know, he was, you know, three kids, working wife, working husband, but like was coming to class. He's like, can I bring Sela to class? I was like, sure. And, you know, he couldn't take notes. So I can't, you know, it's kind of a joke. I carry her and, you know, right on the board and do the thing. And she was adorable. And I laughed, but I said, you know, you know, cause so much we, we think about like, you know, the, the, the pictures of male faculty who will pick up a child and also thinking about the stigma of being motherly, right. As always, you know, but as a confidence issue for women, like I can't be compassionate to you because then you're going to take advantage of me. Like I'm your mother that is less than somehow a, a male professor in the same position. And so part of that was letting go in ways, you know, especially the student I was helping. He's like, I'm so grateful. Thank you for, you know, I was like, sure, she's great. <laughs> I was like, you know, it was a very different sense of, of belonging and kind of understanding the role of teaching in my role at UT. And that is to say that I understand the way that promotion works and has worked for me, right? Publication, teaching, and then service at a much lower percentage of interest too. But for me, service, particularly service to my students, which kind of overlaps with teaching, has always been what's kept me coming back to work, not my research. So I've, you know, that my investment in that was equal to or higher than than research, but I made I, I did what I need to do for my research as well. Same thing with teaching, where I know it's the percentage of value, you know, people trying to hash out how much do I need, what do I need to invest in, but I've always found that teaching grounds me in all the other work that I do and working with my students and engaging and helping them think helps me think. So after working with this idea of making creative options for them in their projects, I wrote a piece that was sort of like a mixed writing, a mixed writing style creative essay for a journal, right? And people loved it. I was like, oh, okay, well, I was just testing out something that my students were doing. So I thought, hey, why not? And so even just the idea of the space for growth the space for growth for all of us, but also my responsibility as a first-generation woman of color to say, this space may not have been made for us, but we can remake it as we as we come into it. And it helps everybody, right? It's it's not it's not trying to be a disservice or or favor anyone, but but there is a certain amount of power in saying the way that we interact on the daily with our students in the classrooms, whether it's levels of compassion, whether it's understanding the dog barking or the baby crying, or the cat that goes across the screen. That I was like, that doesn't invalidate you as, as an intelligent person. To say that out loud to them is a reminder to myself. So it's this kind of a constant cycle of, of being able to um, move back and forth, even to the point where I, I told my chairman, he was like, oh, you're going to try to disappear for the year after, after you get tenure. I was like, I really miss my students. <laughs> and I would probably just be like, I wish I was, you know, on campus in some way to stay connected. Um, so I was like, I'll take a semester. I, I have my semester, but I, I, you know, I still very much value that that experience, but more so as I've been able to say, well, I can trust myself in the classroom. I have a lot of gratitude for um, my students, you know, who, who kind of, who, who were flexible, right? And who had, who had to be to get to UT and more so to survive here. And I, and I love how you said, I mean, so much of what you just said there is just totally resonating with me and I'm just trying to capture your phrasing in my head. <laughs> A snapshot. And I love how you characterize teaching as, as a really authentic two-way street and, and a, a clear example of how that worked to influence other aspects of your academic life. And you know, so often we hear like, I, I sometimes, initially I was being very, um, oh, I don't know, this, this throwaway phrase like, well, I learn as much from my students. And I sometimes feel like people throw that out to sound as if they are engaged with, and I'm not sure I really trust it. Like it almost seems a little fake to say it that way. And so I love that you've couched this in a way that feels very genuine and authentic. Like, of course, you can imagine how trying to go into the classroom and embody what you want for them 
as a reminder to yourself. And it, it also makes me think about how incredible it would have been if you would have had the experience of having you as a professor in college. Have you thought of that? That's something that's crossed my mind. And it's because I had a, a mentor here who said, you know, I thanked you for being such a, you know, such a good mentor, so over and beyond and so compassionate. And she's like, well, you know, we become the mentor that we wish we had. And it's that same kind of way. Like if you, I always went to big public universities, right? And I liked that. I wanted to be anonymous. I was very shy. And so the way in which you're thinking of, of a professor that you could both relate to visually, socioculturally, Joke-wise, I mean, I laugh now that I don't know anyone's popular culture references. I'm too old to say things that they're like, that they get. But but the idea of having a rapport where you genuinely like the people that your students are and you want to engage them, you want to know what they're about, um, makes a lot of difference, right? And it is, it's true. I never had a faculty member that was like me. Because that was, again, always the reason for wanting to enter this profession is to say, you know, this is what a professor looks like. This is what a professor sounds like. This is the weird jewelry a professor wears. <laughs> That's awesome. That's right. Embrace it. Embrace it. I, it's so funny to hear you say that. I'm really learning a lot for me right now, too. I'm going to say that when I think about teaching, when I first started teaching, I dressed, you know, what I perceived as the professional dress, you know, pencil skirts and some heels and jewelry. And I was not comfortable at all. I am a total goofball and a sci-fi geek. Like, like, I am not that person. And especially, you touched a little bit on this, I'm young looking. And when I first started teaching, the students kept thinking I was a grad student. And it was so hard for me. I don't know. I just, I I wanted that authority, but I also was having a really hard time with my self-identity. And what I've been able to grow into more and more each year is just like, forget, just be yourself. And as you pointed out, the students respond so positively to that because they go, oh yeah, I can identify, like we're cool. And it doesn't mean that they respect me less. And in fact, I think there's even greater respect for each other. It's a mutual respect because they know I can go into that room. I can act like a total goofball, but I do know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I mean, it's the truth, right? It's saying it's like, no, no, I've been doing this a while. Don't worry. You know, like, good. it's all right. You're, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I, I get it. And, you know, it's, it's funny because we think about COVID right now. So one of the biggest factors is sort of making fun, right, is when you don't know how to use the technology. And so as opposed to being like hyper nervous and trying to make it perfect, I'm like, listen, I hate Zoom, but I don't know, figure out how to raise your hand and, and make sure you have your camera on. Like, it's not that big a deal. Like, it's not a make it or break it. And I think that's something, at least that I grew up with, both as a work ethic and as moving through higher ed was in my mind, it was always, you get one mistake and then it's over, right? There was this constant pressure. And I, I'm one of the things about teaching and thinking about letting go of that control in the classroom is to be like, it'll be fine. So there's an idea that doesn't make sense. Okay. So move on. Right. And there isn't this, you know, there's not this sense of, yeah, you can quote material if you want, like, you know, out loud in class, but I want to know more that you're thinking about ideas. I, I don't need you to memorize books. And I think that for them, you know, because especially younger students coming out of high school directly, right? Which is just a different way of saying you got to be prepared for this particular test, that they have a lot of a lot of nervousness about grades and things. And I was like, just relax, it'll be fine. <laughs> like it's, it's this is it's, there's a process you're gonna go through, right? And and yeah, that the, the idea of instead of saying you will do this or, you know, it will be this way or there's a rigidity, there's only one way to get it right. I'm like, well, that's just not true. And if we if we try to impart in that there's only one way, then we're doing a real disservice to them in, in being flexible, you know, as they leave the university. So 
been a, a heavy road. It's been a long road. It's been a busy road, but a good one. So interesting, Rachel. So many things that I'm mulling over the flexibility embedded in your courses, helping students embrace the sort of heart of what you're up to and thinking about how flexibility gets me close to that line of failure that sometimes I feel uncomfortable with or that loss of control. And yet again, the very topic for today's conversation, how does modeling some of those lessons learned, trying new things, changing our expectations for what certain professions look like or certain people look like makes a difference here, right? And if, you know, just thinking about how do, you know, why are students coming to college? What what are they meant to get out of college? And understanding that we, we're all socialized very differently to understand college different, you know, for, for, for different purposes, right? I had friends as undergrads who were absolutely after the MRS degree and were looking to find that athlete, that pre-law student, that person that they were going to marry. And I was like, what? (laughs) And I really, to me, college was independence. College was being able to move out of my house in an honorable way and be independent in my future. And yeah, if I study something cool, that's great. As long as I get a job. Like it was not necessarily thinking about the aura and, you know, the idea of, it had a kind of an aura, but it was very much about social mobility. A lot of the students I have, right, they come to the university with really different goals. And some of it is just to get out of their small town. They've been smart, they're like, I, but they don't know why they're here otherwise, right? Flexibility sort of is, a, is about that process too, that, you know, that, that there isn't just one way to do it. Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This well, thank you for incredible having me. conversation. But Rachel, that was awesome. Thanks for talking to us. Great ideas, just motivating me, but I think we've got a lot of good stuff there. Great, great. I'm glad. Thanks, Rachel. Bye. Thank you. So Jen, tell me what resonated with you. Oh man, I just, so much, so much what she talked about. I mean, we, I was thinking about failure, not as a single thing now, but as it affects several different things, like our own self-narrative and how we feel vulnerable going into the class and the crazy stuff we do to make up for that insecurity so that we don't quote unquote fail in front of our students at being what maybe we think they think we should be. (laughs) It's amazing. Brilliant. I love the way you said that, that we fail at what we think they are looking for, how we let these stories about what should be dominate how we act. I was so impressed with her self-awareness to recognize how she has changed over time. I'm not sure I know that story for myself yet. I think I need to spend some time thinking about it, but she had a sense of, it used to look like this. And then I learned. I learned through listening to myself. I learned through imagining what else is possible and then tried some things. And I think in that story, she talked about being flexible, about one assignment. Just try this new idea in one way. And if it's okay, well now maybe I'll embrace that flexibility in even more things. Exactly. You know, she had painted this picture about how she felt so so important that she present this in a very rigorous and what rigorous meant in, in her mind, you know. and. And that it was a student, I just, I felt this, I got goosebumps that it was a student's sort of very authentic question about an assignment format that seeded this entire pivot on her part to allow herself to be who she, who she is. 
And what was amazing about that is she had to be open to that. Do you know what I mean? For all her feelings about rigidity, she had to have within herself the ability to recognize, you know what, that student is correct. I could do it a different way and to go with it. It was incredible. I was also thinking of what she did in that process of change, that student's question, and wouldn't it be so cool to think about that student right now? Does that person know that they had this effect? Right. But you know, Rachel asked, okay, why is this assignment important? As I am building my syllabus for the semester, why is that assignment important? Why is that reading important? Great questions to ask. And then what are we preparing students for? Maybe the way we teach is largely to prepare students to be effective in academics. That's a, that's a great place to work. That's a great place to live. I'm happy to be an academic, but it's not the only place to do good, important things. And maybe I should ask myself more often, what in my syllabus is preparing students for other things? And you know, I love it that it's not one or the other thing there was still a full-on paper assignment for those students who wanted to pursue that and felt comfortable and wanted to express themselves that way. And there was also this other thing. So I love that, that opportunity for choice for self-expression on the part of the students. And I love that idea that you mentioned at the beginning, what narratives define what we're doing? Whose stories are we living through? Whose descriptions of what should be dominate the choices that we make and am I making enough space in my life to think about who am I doing this for? And of course, tying in for a theme today, not only thinking about that, but making the conscious choice to intentionally make yourself vulnerable by being yourself and, and perhaps having some judgment come back. You know what I mean? It's, it's fascinating. Stephanie, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Very inspiring for not only teaching. <laughs> You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you. Thank you.